Welcome back to Series 3 of the Writing Around the Kids podcast. We're really excited to bring to you some great chats with our fabulous guests every week. We do hope you enjoy it. Hi, welcome to the Writing Around the Kids podcast. I'm Anna. And I'm Sam, and we're absolutely delighted today to have Annie Garthwaite with us. Hi, Annie. Hello, nice to be here. So, um, Annie Garthwaite grew up in a working class community in the northeast of England. She studied English at the University of Wales before embarking on a 30 year international business career, working with multinational companies and eventually establishing her own communications consultancy. In 2017, she studied for an MA in creative writing at Warwick University and, during two years of study, wrote her debut novel, Cecily, which was published by Penguin in 2021. Cecily was named a top pick by The Times and Sunday Times and a best book of 2021 by independent bookshops and Waterstones. Her second novel, The King's Mother, will publish in July 2024. Brilliant. And today we're really excited because Annie is going to be reading an extract from Cecily. So I will just read the blurb. So, um, set amidst the unrest and political power play of 15th century England, Garthwaite's vivid, breathtaking novel reimagines the life of Cecily, Duchess of York, a mother, wife and shrewd political player in the War of the Roses. Rebellion? The word is a spark. They can start a fire with it or smother it with their fingertips. She chooses to start a fire. You are born high, but marry a traitor's son. You bear him 12 children, carry his cause and bury his past. You play the game against the enemies who wish you ashes. Slowly you rise. You are Cecily. But when the king who governs you proves unfit, what then? Loyalty or treason? Death may follow both. The board is set, time to make your first move. Told through the eyes of its greatest unknown protagonist, this astonishing debut plunges into the closed bedchambers and bloody battlefields of the first days of the War of the Roses, a war of a war as women fight it. <gasps> How exciting. Okay, so over to you, Annie. And could you just contextualise at what which part of the book you'll be reading from? Yes, I will. Well, as you probably could all guess from that reading, um, from that blurb, Cecily was an immensely powerful woman during the Wars of the Roses in the 15th century. She was the matriarch of the House of York. So this is, and, and you know, she was a woman of power at a very dangerous time. This is really a book about how women in the 15th century and today, really, exercise power in a world where it seems that men have all the power cards. And when I was wondering about where to start this book, I realized that Cecily was in France, in Rouen, in 1431, when Joan of Arc was burnt at the stake. And she was almost certainly present for that event. She was 16 years old and newly married at the time. And I thought, if this is going to be a book about women wielding power and the risks involved with wielding power, there's no better place to start than with Joan of Arc. Fantastic. So I thought I'd read to you a little bit from that opening chapter. It's the 30th of May in 1431, and we're in Rouen in France. It's no easy thing to watch a woman burn, a young woman who has seen only three more summers than yourself and claims the voice of God compels her actions. But there it is. 
the day's work and she must harden herself to it. So on a May morning so fine, its early sun has already chased Ruan's peacocks into shadows, Cecily has put on black velvet, somber and rich. She has bound a rosary at her waist, a reminder to the French that God has answered the prayers of the English and delivered Joan of Arc into their hands. A reminder to her king that her loyalty is to him and to heaven. She waits now in the market square, her face to the pyre, and sullen French anger at her back for the signal that will tell her that Joan is coming out to die. She raises her head when it comes, a trumpet call high and vicious, and beneath it the crowds murmur growing to a roar. Beside her, her husband Richard straightens his back, squares his feet. She swallows bile and does the same. The sun is hot enough, but that's nothing, she thinks, to the blaze to come. Have courage, her mother would say. Faith and courage can accomplish anything. Cecily wonders if Joan's mother told her the same. Likely someone did. In her glory days, Joan put on armour and rode at the head of armies. With words alone, she roused the fearful king and turned the tide of a war. Imagine. Now the tide runs all against her, and she must find only the courage to die. And though Joan is England's enemy, Cecily wishes courage for her now. Soon the ring of metalled feet overwhelms the clarion, and the crowd parts through a wagon, its blade bristling guard, and the prisoner bound upon it. It's the first time she's seen Joan, and isn't sure what to expect. Just a pale, thin girl, it seems, head shorn and bloodied. It doesn't look like there's much spite left in her. The bright armour of Joan's soldiering days is long gone, and today's thin shift, with the filth of a prison year upon it, is scant covering for a body that, some say, English soldiers have been allowed their way with. Though Richard says, surely not. Cecily can believe it. The king's uncles have long wanted Joan dead, but they wanted her shamed first. Cecily sees John stumble as she's pulled from the wagon and thinks for a moment she'll fall and knock herself senseless, and what then? But the guards press in to hold John upright, her body crushed between their bulk as they jostle towards the pyre, her arms pinioned behind her, her small breasts sticking. The desperate parade passes close enough that Cecily can see John's eyes, one is closed by livid bruises. The other, white rimmed and wide, is fixed on the crucifix borne high above her by a priest, leading the way to death and whatever might lie beyond that. Joan's lips are moving, and Cecily recognizes the words of the Ave falling, stuttering, and fast. She wonders what she prays for. Rescue? 
what is an end to this? I would pray for the death of every Englishman here, Cecily thinks. Then suddenly she's afraid, for no one can fathom the power of John's prayer, and Richard stands beside her, who has seen John tried and nodded his head at her sentence. Her breath catches, and she pants once, and he's holding out a hand to steady her. She raises a palm, shakes her head to signal no, then makes a fist to hide her fingers trembling. He draws back, and she feels his gaze follow hers, to where the guards are handing Joan into the reaching arms of men who wait to receive her. They draw her up, their legs flailing, then bind her and bring more wood so that she stands deep among a thicket of stone. She can no longer hear Joan's prayers, so out of pity and to guard her own soul, she speaks them with her as the men clamber down and reach for their torches. At last the fire is set, and the flames lick like dogs at John's feet and thighs. Cecily feels their growing heat against her own cheek, as John's voice, steady at the last, rings out above her head. All I have done was by God's order, and urgent, as the priest's arms falter and his burden dips, hold up the cross of Christ that I may see it as I die. Cecily narrows her eyes against livid sparks as Joan's prayers give way to hacking coughs and shrieks and sudden silence. She sets herself to watch as flesh burns, blossoms, and falls away. There's grit in her eyes. Sweat runs the cleft of her shoulder blades, and beneath her clasped hands, her stomach shrivels. But she won't flinch. This is a test. Oh, fantastic. Oh, Honestly, I, I could li just listen to you read the entire book. It's, I think we got a little bit hypnotised listening to you. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Cecily is such an extraordinary a character, historical figure. Um, how mm. did you come across her in the first place? It started when I was very young. I was in school and I had one of those history teachers. You know, sometimes you just get a teacher. It can be any subject, but who just captures your imagination and makes you fall in love with the subject. Yeah. And I had a history teacher like that. And he was in a tea hill and he was teaching Wars of the Roses. And I was just completely captivated by his teaching and the stories that he would tell. And... I guess my hero at the time was Richard III, Cecily's very famous son. And I was about I know, 14 at the time, I suppose. And he was my first teenage crush. <laughs> when everyone else was having a crush on Donny Osmond, I was having one on Richard III. <laughs> but as I got older, I got much more interested in the women around Richard because at that period of history, there were just some really barnstorming women around, Margaret of Anjou and Margaret Beaufort and Elizabeth Woodrow, names that might be familiar. But there was one woman who was really hard to get a handle on, really hard to grasp, and that was Cecily, Richard's mother. And she's one of those powerful women that have been swept, sort of swept under the carpet of history, mm -hmm. that it. 
and I was captivated by her. So I was just from then on really determined to expose this woman's story and bring her bring her back. <laughs> but you didn't bring her back straight away, did you? This has been a, a, a quite a long labour of love to get to the point where Cecily was a, a yeah. fully formed book. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I, I guess the idea for the novel really arose in my late teens, early 20s. And my idea was, my naive and glorious idea at the time, was that after university, I would try and get a job in publishing and I would write at the same time. And I thought that would be a lovely way to live, you know, working with books all day and writing books at night. I thought that'd be marvellous. And I would write just these stories. And I did leave university and I did get a job in publishing. But um, I don't know what it's like now, but in the 80s, jobs in publishing were very poorly paid. And uh, it seems to me all the women who worked in publishing were called Polly or Fiona and were engaged to Rupert. <laughs> Uh, oh, they had a trust fund from Daddy, and it didn't matter that they had next to nothing. But I, I had neither a Rupert nor a trust fund, so I was working in bars at night and bookshops at weekends just to pay rent and live in London to, to work. So there was no time to write, so I really needed a plan B. Um, so I made a what was at the time a really difficult decision, which was to put the idea of writing this novel to one side for a long time and that I would come out of publishing and I would get a job in an industry where I knew I could make a reasonable living mm. and work hard and try and make hay while the sun shone but that at 55 I would retire from business early and write this bloody book <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I did. So in 2017, I was 55, and I thought, right, here we go. So I gave up my business, gave up my job, and went back to went back to school and did a creative writing degree and used the two years of that uh, creative writing MA, I should say, used that two years to write, to finally write this book. And it, it, it I mean, that's just, yeah, incredible and, yeah, very inspiring and the commitment to it. But so... Um, was she with you through all those years, you know, in your head? Mm. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I mean, it would be no lie, really, to say that I've been researching this book for 40 years. Yeah. I've been interested in her and her period for that long. And, and you know, in a way, I'm glad that, I'm glad that I waited because um, if I'd written this book in my 20s, it would have been a book about Richard III's mum. Mm, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But writing it in my 50s, it became a book about women and power. And I guess the time when Cecily came closest to me in that intervening period was when I was in the world of work, particularly in my early 30s, in my early and mid-30s, when I was working for big multinational American companies. And I would, you know, in one case in particular, I was the most senior woman in their European organization. Mm frequently the only woman at the table, frequently trying to get men to do the things that I needed or wanted or desired them to do. And it occurred to me that I was learning to use all of the wiles and tactics that especially would have used 500 years ago. Yeah. Um, So in that way, her story became 
much more mature in my mind and much clearer to me and much more a, a story of all women for all time, if you know what I mean. Yes, because you described Cecily as a feminist, one of the early feminists. And it, why do you think women like Cecily were written out of history? Well, in Cecily's case, <laughs> well, I think there's two things. I think in Cecily's particular case, Shakespeare's got a lot to answer for. Mm. Because although he didn't do her son Richard III any favours, turned him into a hunchback tyrant, <laughs> he didn't do much for for Cecily, his mother, either, because when you go on and you look for Cecily in the history plays, she's very old, she hardly appears, and when she does, she's very old, she's very pious, she has no power, she has no agency, she doesn't have much to say, and nobody's listening, she just wanders around a lot complaining about how dreadful the kids are and how it's not her fault. And I think that everyone's like, oh, well, that's Cecily Neville, she's a bit dull, really, isn't she? Let's move on to someone more interesting. So I think for 500 years, people's perceptions of Cecily have been coloured by um, by Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. But more generally, I think it's been in the interest of men to subvert female power stories, because the last thing men have wanted is for women to be powerful. Mm-hmm. And also the medieval chronicles of the time were written exclusively by men, and often by clerical men, often by monks, who didn't know any women, <laughs> probably didn't much like them yeah. and thought they were the root of all sin and evil in the world. So yeah. they were never going to get a fair crack of the wit. And yet there have been women throughout history and throughout the medieval medieval period who stood shoulder to shoulder with the men and exercised substantial power. There's an excellent non-fiction book that's just come out by the historian Janina Ramirez called Femina. And it looks at women throughout classical, medieval, and more contemporary history who have been written out of the story, literally expunged mm. from, the, from the record because they were deemed too powerful to have had too much agency. And so, it's going to stop. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a story, it kind of comes up again and again, this kind of gap in the archives when it comes to women. Um, mm. And so... Kind of with that in mind, how do you even go about researching uh, for a book like this when the, the stories of women aren't kind of readily available? Mm. Well, thank you. There's, there's a real resurgence at the moment for sort of revisionist history and yeah. recovering the voices of medieval women. So that is definitely underway. So within the broader context of medieval women, you get much more contemporary historians writing about that. Um, but, you know, there, there hadn't even been uh, an academic biography of Cecily until, until luckily, 2017, when <laughs> uh, a historian, uh, just as I was sitting down to write, and uh, I knew that a historian I know had, you know had been working on a biography of her for a long time, and she finally published it in 2017. And I screwed up all my courage and, and invited her to have lunch with me, and she very kindly did. She's become firm friends since. Um, so I was really able to draw on her knowledge and, and expertise. I've spoken with countless historians. And there are some documents left um, of Cecily. So there, there are some records of her letters that are in the National Archives in various collections. And she left a very extensive will. 
And you do begin to, it's, it's largely patchwork, but you do begin to get an impression of a woman and who, you know, was throughout, I mean, she lived for 80 years. Yes. And during that 80-year period, she was never far from the, from the sort of seat of royal power. Mm. She was born into a royal family. She married the Duke of York, who had a direct claim to the English throne. Two of her sons became king. She acted as regent on behalf of one of them, and there's no doubt in my mind that she was the driving force behind both of their bids for the throne. Um, she was a real political mover and shaker. Yeah. And more broadly, broadly when you look at women as Cecily's class and status in this period, you know that what they were, what they were responsible for, in terms of the estates that they managed and the men that answered to them and the financial business and transactions that they carried out, it's not dissimilar to being the CEO of a mid-footsy company. Yeah. So this sort of image of medieval aristocratic women as sort of either hapless victims or just pretty decorations is nonsense. You know there was. They were women of business and action. You know, they weren't sitting around doing their embroidery. They were, they were running the show. You know, and you have to think that a lot of the time their men were away fighting, either in England or in France, for long periods. So you know, who was who was running the show while the men were off knocking mm -hmm. seven bells out of each other? You know, it was it was the women. And with her as well, I mean, it sounds like it was very fortuitous that a biography came out at the point where you were back at your desk, ready to mm. to kind of launch into writing the book. Um, and you've mm. mentioned about that there's some kind of circumstantial evidence which you've then created. Um, you, you can make an educated guess that she was there, like um, with the burning yeah. of Joan of Arc. But yeah. when writing and creating character out of history... How much artistic license is there within writing that? I think for me, the, the, the rule I give myself is that I will not make up history. I'm a bit Star Trek of it. You know, don't mess with the timeline. <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if we know for a fact that something happened in a certain way, then I will not pretend it didn't. You know, I, I, and you see a lot of historical writers doing this you know, inventing historical characters or, you know, messing with messing with known facts. And I won't do that. But fortunately, for this period of history, there, there is so much that either isn't recorded or that is hotly contested and can be read either way, that it gives you a lot of leeway, mm. you know, a lot of room for creative license. And people often ask me, you know, why, why don't you write history? You know, what What's the difference between writing history and writing fiction? And I think, you know, if you want the bold facts of what happened during the Wars of the Roses, go and read the history books. Yeah. But if you want to understand what it might have been like to live through them, try fiction. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, the history books will tell you what happened, but fiction will tell you what it felt like. So I guess I found myself especially looking at what she did what we know of her that is recorded, the sort of voice that she's left us in her letters and correspondence, and let her character emerge from that. And you get the feeling, well, certainly I did, the impression grew in me of an immensely 
strong-willed, mm. clear-sighted, pragmatic woman who nonetheless felt absolute and profound loyalty to her family, both politically and emotionally, and that that forged uh, everything that, that, that kind of informed everything that she did in her life. I remember my creative writing teacher at, uh, at Warwick saying to me one day, you know, a good way of getting to know your characters, you know, getting into your characters is to sit down and pretend to interview them. You know, ask them about themselves and start to get them to talk to you. I thought, oh, that's a good exercise. That's a good idea. I'm going to try that. So I sat down opposite Sesame and she looked at me with that raised eyebrow of hers and, um, and said, who are you to be asking me questions? <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of told me everything you needed to know about Sesame. You know, she's a woman who guards herself very much she knows exactly what she's about. She knows how much to say and how much not to say. She knows how to protect herself and her power. And uh, she's not going to let a little nobody like me get too close. <laughs> so um, your your next, uh, the, uh, the King's Mother is coming out next yeah. year. Um, yeah. And could you tell us a bit about that and about the process kind of for writing that? Yes. So this was much harder to write than the first book because you, know, you get that little voice that's sitting on your shoulders going, just because you've written one book that doesn't mean you can write mm-hmm. another again. <laughs> so it's that tricky second album thing. But it, it's still part of that story that I wanted so much, that I've wanted so long to write. And this book is set in the later years of the Wars of the Roses. Cecily is still very much a central character, but I draw into three other really powerful women uh, of the period, and I mentioned their names earlier. There's Marguerite of Anjou, Margaret Beaufort, and Elizabeth Woodburn. And all three of those women do extraordinary, either driven by ambition or necessity or fear or whatever, but they do extraordinary extraordinary things and terrible things sometimes to try and put their son on the throne and become king's mother themselves. And at the point where the novel opens, Cecily is kind of the incumbent of that title. She is the king's mother and her son Edward is king. So she's kind of the rock that the other three have got to throw themselves against to try and wrest power. So this second book really becomes a power play between four women. Mm. <laughs> and Annie, I know I've no, I've heard you talk before about your process that you, um, when you write, um, you'll write a chapter. You 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 don't kind of draft. You'll um, write a chapter to as good as you want it mm. to be and as factually correct before you move on to the to the next chapter. Um, yeah. So with that in mind, how do you, what does your writing day look like when you're sitting down to, to write? Is it, um, yeah, how, how, how do you kind of measure success within that writing period? It's really hard. It's really hard. And, and, and it's very, the measure of success can vary from day to day. Um, but yes, you're right. I, I'm, I'm very sort of pedantry really and probably a bit dull, but I can, 
I can only move on to chapter two when I'm confident that I've got chapter one pretty much where, where I need it, you know, where it needs to be, yeah. as good as it can be, and then I can move on. And, and I and I can't imagine doing it any other way than that. I would feel as though I was building on very shaky foundations. Mm. So I've got a sort of the structure of the novel in my mind and the key milestones I've got to get to, but then it really is a sort of chapter-by-chapter slog through the story. And my usual writing day, and I'm very disciplined too about this, you know, and I guess it's many years of, of working for myself, you know, I, I hit my desk at 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, and I don't leave it until 5, 6 o'clock at night, and I work a full working day. Mm. And, you know, however much the muse may or may, may or may not be inspiring or the words flowing, it's the job of work. And it's often split between um, actually writing and doing, you know, that sort of, a lot of research is done before you ever sit down to write, but, but some of the detailed research and checking is done as you're writing so the day is often split between writing and research and fact checking um so sometimes a good day will be i've written half a chapter Mm. they're quite rare often it'll be i've got half a dozen sentences i'm quite pleased with Mm. (laughs) you know and other times it will be yeah I've, i've spent most of today thinking about the structure and shape and and narrative needs of this chapter and now I've got that clear in my head that's a really good day yeah. you know and tomorrow I'll write it you know so it can it can vary but it it's slow you know it it's craft and it's graft too mm. with the that in mind if um you were to give advice to somebody just starting out uh in writing mm. Or, or maybe what you wish you'd someone had said to you at the beginning of your your writing journey. What what would that be? Oh, it's really simple. And it's two things: read a lot, <laughs> because then you will absorb almost by osmosis the craft of writing and the beauty of words strung together in beautiful sentences. But write, write all the time. Write even when it isn't going well. Mm. Keep writing even when you know you're writing rubbish. I remember when I, just before I started the MA in 2017, and I hadn't done any creative writing for quite some time at that point, and I sat down to try and write, and I, I just couldn't. It was just dreadful. Every paragraph I wrote was a mess. And I took myself on a writing retreat, and, and I can remember saying to the guy who was running the retreat, I said, look, I think I'm going to have to ring Warwick and tell them I can't come after all because I, I just can't do this. I've forgotten how to do this thing. And he said to me, no, no, no. He said, it's fine. He said, you've written well in the past. You will write well again. He said, it's just that you need a bit more WD-40 on the mm. writing engine. <laughs> it's just got a bit seized up. You know, practice, 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 practice. Keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And keep refining as you go. You know, I think that's the best advice anyone ever gave me. Get the oil can out. Brilliant. Thanks, Annie. So this is get the oil can out, get writing and just kind of, yeah, yeah, don't be too kind of self-critical at the beginning of doing these things as well. Um, So if any of our listeners would like to find you either on social media and so on, do you have any, are you on Twitter or anything like that, Annie? Yes, I'm on Twitter and 
Facebook and Instagram, and you can find me just at, at Annie Garthwaite. And um, my website is anniegarthwaite.com, and there you can sign up for my newsletter, which I send out two or three times a year if you want to be involved in that. Um, yeah, so yes, reach out to me, and you can reach through my uh, website, you can reach out to me on email too if you have any direct questions that you'd like to ask or anything like that. Brilliant. Thank you, Annie. And uh, The King's Mother will be published in July 2024. We're very, very much looking forward to reading that. Um, Ooh, thank you so much for exciting. spending some time with us. It's been a total joy to, to speak with you, Annie. Oh, thank you so much. It's always good to talk. Thanks, Annie. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you found some inspiration in that chat. For more writing resources, go to our website, writingaroundthekids.co.uk, where you'll find tips, prompts and links to our social media. And don't forget, you can catch up with all the brilliant episodes from Series 1 and 2.